0: I think the first book I ever read was one up on wall street by Peter mm. Lynch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty common. I, I, I'm pretty sure of you. You have heard of that book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so that really, when I, b- before I picked up that book, I knew nothing about investing, right? So mm. I didn't know what a stock is. Why would a stock price go up? Why would a stock price go down? Mm. Um, what's the stock market? So that book really gave me the basics. And from then, uh, and taught, taught me like what to look out for in a company. Uh, and, and why a stock price goes up and, mm. and how you can make money in the stock market. So um, that gave me a good fundamental grasp of the, of, the, of the stock market, of investing in the stock market. Um, so yeah, that's by Peter Lynch uh, and he's one of the investing greats. Uh,
1: Before we begin the podcast, have you gotten your free ebook? It's called the Build a Six Figure Portfolio Guidebook. Now inside it, we share with you the tips and tricks to bring your stock investing skills to the next level. The best part? It's only ten pages long, and it's totally free. Whether you're on Spotify or YouTube, the link to download is in the description, or you can go to www.firl.co/slash. F-R-E-E or co slash free.
2: Hello, 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 and good day, everyone. Welcome back to the FIRER podcast. Best place for long-term stock investors. MJ, we have a doctor in the house today. MJ.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, this was uh is this the first doctor we're having a meeting? I
2: think so. I really think so. You know, but uh this doctor right now he doesn't dissect uh, any parts of your body, he's mm. dissecting stocks actually so ah, that's right yeah that's right that's right so um today we have a very special guest as all our guests um and he's uh down south uh and w- one day we definitely have to go and visit the gang uh, the yeah, kairos I mean, gang down south you know <laughs> yeah for sure
1: Jerry so, and surging and the likes yeah
2: that's right that's right and uh it is my pleasure to introduce Shall I call him Dr. Jeremy Chia? I think you, you've <laughs> relinquished that doctor's title already, is it, Jeremy?
0: Yeah, uh, you don't have to call me doctor anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. So Jeremy,
2: welcome to our podcast.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having yeah. me. Hello.
2: Yeah, Yeah, Hello. and, and uh, probably uh, I'll, I'll dive straight into it. And uh, Jeremy has a very interesting past. But before we start into his uh, med- medical line, I would like to know what, what is a 15-year-old Jeremy like? T- tell me a little bit more about a 15-year-old Jeremy. I know I, I saw soccer, I saw table tennis. So uh, probably start from there or, and, and then into you know, <laughs> other parts of your life at like 15. Yeah,
0: so probably a very, very typical um, kind of childhood. Uh, growing up in Singapore, um, going to school, playing football after school and uh, in Singapore, everybody does uh, what they call a co-curricular activity. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. CCA. Um, So I did table tennis, as you mentioned, I did table tennis, I did. And in JC, I did kayaking. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was also in the uniform group uh, in secondary school and So yeah, so I spent my time playing a lot of sports, going out with friends. yeah mm. i had a pretty fun childhood i, I would say <laughs> <Yeah>. okay
2: okay <laughs> yes. uh, why 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 the love for soccer i think i know maybe uniform bodies and all that was probably to score the points like you know we yeah, all need the yeah. points to get into uni but mm. i mean between the sports that you play which one was the you felt most passionate about I, I i i assume soccer but you know correct me if i'm wrong
0: yeah so soccer was just um something i did on the side cca was table this <laughs> um I was better in table tennis. Soccer, I was. Uh, you know, everybody loves to play soccer, so uh, it was just something that yeah, you, everybody in Singapore loves it. It's like I see, yeah. I and see. Table tennis, I picked it up like when I went to, I went to, a, I think resort. I think was Rasa Sentosa in Sentosa, and they had a table tennis table there. Started playing with my brother, and uh, and really loved the sport. So I just joined the, I joined the the CCA in primary school. I see she caught the 30, buck. Uh. Yeah, I caught a bug, David tennis bug, and yeah. and then started playing from there.
2: I see. I yeah. see. Yeah. What made you choose medicine to study?
0: Yeah, so after JC, I went to Army. Uh, so after JC, um I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Like mm. I, I guess I guess most people would um would be familiar with that. I mean uh, people would probably take a generic degree if they didn't know what to do, but mm, my parents were thinking that, uh, like, kind of thought that medicine would be a good fit for me, and I, uh, being a uh, a young young kid at the time and not not knowing what to do, I just kind of followed the advice and and my brother was doing medicine as well. So my brother was my brother's one year older than me. He mm-hmm. he was like first year med school in in Perth, uh, so. I guess I just decided okay maybe let's give that a go Mm, (laughs) it was mm -hmm. fun yeah it was fun while while I studied it I enjoyed I enjoyed my my time in Australia so I spent six years studying medicine in Australia Mm -hmm. Um, met a lot of new friends uh, had a great time in Australia Um, and learned about all the living overseas and 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 also i mean the the subjects itself in in the course were were quite interesting, so it was quite broad as well you learn about i mean not just anatomy but basically I, everything about about management and everything about uh, medicine um, but after after I graduated i didn't want to i i wanted to try something else okay i had mm. a lot of i had a lot of friends who were doing other things. Uh, traveling the world and all sorts of things. So I want to try something else. So I, I decided to do an internship in a hedge fund. Uh, hmm. Yeah. So hmm. I think all my Met med friends went to do an internship in the hospital. <laughs> 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 so I did a the housemanship. Uh, they did a the housemanship in the hospital. I did my internship in the hedge fund. Um, do they allow that in school? No, it's not It's Yeah, I had to apply it for myself. So it wasn't I like... See. Yeah, so the, the housemanship is a one-year course. Right? Uh, one-year thing for... For you to practice in hospital before you can like, get your license your full license mm. I, I didn't mm-hmm. even do that so after i got my degree i, I just straight out went to a hedge fund to, to do an internship um, uh. and then yeah <laughs> and then so my whole career changed from that
2: <laughs> i see oh, w- were you interested in investing prior to applying to the hedge fund where, where, where did you catch the bug of investing yeah, in, so in finance Actually,
0: probably at the like after i came up like after medicine i was like what what do i want to do so mm. um, i was thinking my my dad my dad used to be a investment banker as well, so I mean he he did talk about investing and all sorts a little bit of these things, um, but uh, I I wasn't I didn't catch an investing bug in uni. So it was only after I came out I was thinking I want to try something else. So I did a I went to hedge fund, and before that I started reading up books on investing, and mm. from that hedge fund and from the preparing to go into the hedge, internship in the hedge fund, um, that's when I really like caught the investing bug as you can call it yeah
1: I, i'm just curious <laughs> what was the interview process like when you
0: were at the hedge fund right did uh, I you like oh, why are you here did they say <laughs> <laughs> okay i was kind of lucky i have to admit uh so um, the hedge fund manager is my is actually my next door neighbor in singapore <laughs> uh, <laughs> so did yeah i went through, <laughs> through the normal HR process i, I went email in and but he kind of knew me, <laughs> so uh, even though he knew that I, w- I was like uh, still fresh and still didn't know much about investing, he said, "Yeah, why not just come and learn for three months?" It was not a long internship; it was just a short three months. Then he was happy to like go there, uh, go to his fund and and coach me uh, in a sense. Yeah, it's a small, it's a small fund. It's a I mean, they manage quite a sum of money. So like mm-hmm. I think, they, um, but. Um, but the team is, is relatively uh, small, about five or six investment analysts there. So it was quite a good environment to, to like, bounce ideas and learn from them.
2: I see. I see. What was your first book that you picked up? Or maybe rather than the first book, what was the book among all the books that you've read about investing that really you know, felt that it was more insightful than the rest? Huh? I'm not belittling the other books, but you know, <laughs> just one book that you know, kind of like
0: yeah, i read a few books. Um, I think the first book I ever read was One Up on Wall Street by Peter mm-hmm. Lynch. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's pretty common. I, I, I'm pretty sure of you, you've you heard of that book. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that really... when I, b- Before I picked up that book, I knew nothing about investing, right? So mm. I didn't know what a stock is. Why would a stock price go up? Why would a stock price go down? Mm. Um, what's the stock market? So that book really gave me the basics. And from then, uh, and taught, taught me like, what to look out for in a company uh, and, and why a stock price goes up and, mm. and how you can make money in the stock market. So um, that gave me a good fundamental grasp of the, of, the, of the stock market, of investing in the stock market. Um, so yeah, that's by Peter Lynch. Uh, and he's one of the investing greats. Right? Um, so I also picked up um, Common Stocks and Common Profits by Philip Fisher. I, mm, right? mm. Yeah, uh, that was more about... Uh, yeah it's uh, running a similar theme about how how to pick stocks uh, growth investing uh so i think I think these two books really shaped my investing philosophy. If I, I picked see. up some trading book maybe i would have of, thought about trading in a short term way but because I've read these books i i i think about trading or i think about investing as a in stocks as a very long term uh, and eventually the stock price will move towards the business fundamentals or the earnings per share
2: I see, I see. Yeah. It was quite surprising that, you know, I, 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 you mentioned that your dad was actually into, into investment banking, but mm. uh, I, I trust that it was you and your brother, two, just, just the two of you, is it?
0: Uh, I have a sister as well and she's also doing medicine now.
2: <laughs> uh, okay, so you see, dad, dad being investment banker, mom, I'm guessing, uh, was uh, taking care of the family?
0: Uh, she was an accountant for a while but worked in a bank so she did accountancy worked in a bank and yeah she 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 quit her job i think when we were young pretty young
2: yeah, yeah. so both parents in finance but all three yeah. kids end up in medicine is that is that <laughs> is that, is uh, that by true coincidence true. By,
0: yeah <laughs> i think like my dad did accounting but ended up in investment banking but he maybe he always wanted to be a doctor <laughs> so he, like kind of like pushed us into that path yeah
2: I see I see not no. pushed us,
0: like but more like you know like encourages to to try to see try to see whether we were we, we like that We I like the, the medical path
2: I see so when you got on board this investing bar, did you like hey pa I don't think I want to be a doctor Yeah, you, if you're you know? well Yeah <laughs> how was the response
0: <laughs> I would say yeah so the, the, the response at the start was not uh, was not like they were very happy about it they wanted me to, because I studied six years in meds, med school. It's not it's not cheap, so yeah, I mean, my yeah, parents pay yeah. for <laughs> pay for yeah. me for my for my degree, right? So yeah, um, they wanted me to practice a little bit more. And of course, it wasn't like investing would would not be an immediate success. It was a very, um, I mean, it would be hard for me to get like into a a proper job investing. I, I mean, I was lucky with, uh, to get an internship in a hedge fund, but after that. Uh, i still i i couldn't secure a long term uh like job in a in the, in the in the hedge fund for mm. uh for a couple for a couple of years right so mm. um before i i started writing for the moifu and all that so yeah there's a lot of uncertainty around uh when changing like careers so from something that i i would be pretty comfortable with i mean uh, career and medicine have been pretty comfortable mm. um, financially um but yeah so i I think they they were definitely concerned, uh, and also I mean kind of wasted their th- their money and the six year course, right so I think mean, I could easily have done a business degree and be more prepared for the field that I wanted to go into investing, or even an accounting degree where pre- met, better prepared me than 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 medicine, but mm. yeah but over over time i think, and with with some luck and we have mani- i managed to meet the the right people and 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 now, yeah. So now, um, uh, I've me and Serjing, uh, I think he's come on this podcast before. We have set yeah. up a fund together, and, and I mean, our could be pretty. Hopefully, hopefully, we are set. We are set for long term. I mean, to to build a good fund for, for for our investors and and for our own careers. Yeah.
2: Great. Did your did you did you after your dad? You know, kind of you won him over. Said this is the path that you want to choose. They say, hey. Now, since you've got tons, years and tons of experience in investment banking, do you try to get him to impart that experience to you in a way?
0: Uh, yeah, so mm, uh, we, we, do, we do chat about investing. Uh, at, uh, but he, he's more of a, investment banking. He did a lot of M&A. I think I a see. lot of like uh, deals and all that. So not so much uh, equity analyst or, or sort of quite different fields. But mm, mm. yeah, but um, uh, he he also likes to to delve into equity investing and read annual reports. So I see. Yeah. Did okay, that rub great. off
1: you when you were young, or like, uh, and also like, when did you start reading the books? Was it during your med- medicine days, or or slightly later, or when?
0: Yeah. So after medicine, before I did my internship, I started picking up on investing. Uh, uh, so that was yeah. That was maybe. Okay. Okay uh when i was what 25 so i I, i'm not one of those like warren buffett started at 12 years old guys (laughs) i much i started much later yeah yeah Uh,
2: yeah Yeah. Yeah. and um so you there was one part of your your cv that i couldn't quite figure out which was you know after you did that internship Hmm. you became a project manager and worked on some discount memberships and raised funds so what what was that about actually if you don't mind,
0: yeah. I started, like, I started this, um, have you heard of the entertainer? You know, in,
2: uh, um, Sorry, uh, enlighten okay, me. Yeah. Yeah. So it's
0: a bit like a membership where you buy a, a year membership and you get uh, discounts at like uh, 100 dif- or 200 different cafes and restaurants. You know? okay. So okay. we tried to set that up in Singapore. I mean, it went okay for one or two years, then we decided it's just too much effort. So then I, I started to write for the Motley Fool. Yeah.
2: I see, I see, I see. Yeah. How how hard do you had to knock to get on the Motley Fool? <laughs> the I, Motley I'm guessing at that time David Kuo was already there, right?
0: Yeah, David Kuo was there. Uh, they were ready they were they were looking for content content creators for their for their website, mm-hmm. um, and I was I was already in, into investing. I and I was looking very much into the Singapore stock market at that time, which was their focus. Mm-hmm. Um, so. And so searching, searching was writing, uh, searching was writing for them already. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had said, well, why not you just uh, email them? Uh, they, they're they looking for some people to write for them. So I emailed them, gave them some sample copies of what I've been writing, what I've been, uh, and some of the thoughts on, my thoughts on investing. And then I set up a chat with David Kuo. And yeah, it was a <laughs> pretty straightforward process. I mean, if they didn't like my work, they... Uh, They could use. They can like easily just ask me to edit it, or so. uh, uh, So I think yeah, they they were pretty nice about it, and I see. And
2: and
0: just let me let me let me let me into the team.
2: I see. I see. Um, When when you were at the Motley Fool, um, did it change a a bit of the perception about because you read Lynch, you read Fisher, right, Mm. and obviously a little bit more of the classics. Did it kind of like uh, uh, evolve your investment philosophy, and did it did it shape a new way of looking at things, and most importantly, before even that, how on earth do you meet meet Surging? So I'm guessing that Surging actually opened the door, helped in a way, helped you open the yeah. door to Motley Fool. How how do you bump into Surging in the first place, actually? So
0: I know Surging f- since since I was maybe about seventeen years old. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, so it's Jing was um. I had a good friend from my secondary school who went to surgeons, who became surgeons' classmate in JC in junior college see, I yeah, see. so when I hang out with him he brings like Sergin will come and uh, or like I'll hang out with their whole class sometimes mm, 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 <laughs> yeah mm, so mm. so I got to know Sergin and so we play football together we play uh, like Dota I don't know if you yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah 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 MJ plays Dota quite a bit last time <laughs> yeah. yeah
1: last time yeah.
0: <coughs> yeah yeah so that's how that's how we I got to know Sergin and he's the one who brought, who kind of like brought me into Motley Fool.
2: Great, great.
0: Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah, second question about Motley yeah. Foo, how did it evolve my way of thinking? I think, um, I wouldn't say that Fisher or Peter Lynch or Molly David Gardner, Tom Gardner had, has very different ways of investing, but um, they're, they're, the main principle of investing is still the same, right? Mm-hmm. That, uh, a stock price will follow the earnings per share or the free cash flow per share over the long term. Mm. So um, all three of them have the same principles and, but ha- and, ha- and, and that that investing philosophy, I think in the end, kind of forms the investing decisions. Mm. Uh, the Molly Fool is more like, Peter Lynch invests in a, maybe uh, a very wide basket of stocks. So he invests, he's highly diversified, invests a like thousand mm. stocks at a time. Or up to a thousand stocks maybe at a time. Uh Molly also has a quite a wide basket, but they don't invest they, they tell you to like um they advise retail investors to hold up to like 30 stocks. You know? So I think the, the key thing is that you have to be comfortable with your style of investing, but the ultimate principle behind investing still stays the same. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So Yeah, because it, it's 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 quite interesting because um certain uh Uh, Investors have different styles, different portfolio strategies, which we will get to later. But I, I, you know, Motley Fool is in a way in my opinion kind of like uh pioneered the way of looking at valuations very very differently in i mean compared to the past la that that mm. the previous yeah. investors uh. are yeah. so i yeah. don't know you, are, are you you know there's this always this debate about value versus growth and all that kind of thing what what are your thoughts about this this term you know the differentiation between value versus growth kind of investor style mm.
0: yeah i think warren buffett is the one who said that value and growth are 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 not two separate things. They are, they are tied at the hip, right? Correct. So, I mean, when you look at a value of a company, you have to take into account its growth. Mm. Uh, so, but I mean, there are two different uh, like brackets of investing. One is value investing. One is growth investing. Growth mm. investing is investing in companies that are growing very quickly. Um, and the valuation from a trailing 12-month perspective looks very high, right? Mm. Whereas value investing is is investing in a company that may not be growing so quickly, but from a value perspective, from a like a PE ratio kind of perspective, it's trading at a very low multiple or price to book ratio is trading at a very low multiple. Um, So I think that there are pros and cons of investing in both sides. So when you invest in value investing, you're like kind of wanting that the investment will or the valuation multiple will expand towards towards the mean. So towards Mm. the, like uh, what they call, um, yeah, so we'll, we'll, like a mean revert, yeah. So then you have after a mean reverts, you need to exit the company and try to find another low multiple company. Whereas mm. growth investing is about investing in a company that can keep on growing and growing and growing, and and, and like grow into its multiple basically. Uh, to me, I like growth investing. I like to to invest in true compoundness mm. uh, companies that and and yeah. From a trailing perspective, sometimes growth investing can look quite optically. It looks very expensive. Um, mm. but companies that can grow for long or durable, uh, long sustainable periods of time and they very mm. durable growth can actually like uh grow into that valuation over time. I yeah, see. So um yeah, so I would say that I, I'm open to both styles, but I'm more inclined to towards the growth. And I think that it, value and growth are, are kind of conjoint kind of twins. Yeah, yeah. conjoint twins in the sense. Yeah.
2: I mean, MJ and I, we have a view of uh, it's just a marketing hype that a lot of people just kind of dilute the name, <laughs>
1: dilute yeah. the terms actually in, in the yeah,
0: Yeah, value is based on trailing multiples and growth is based on like. Yeah. You know.
1: I, I think it, it doesn't help that everything is purely quantitatively defined. So, you know, like uh, value is, they call it factor investing, right? Like, oh, low P, low price to book, things like that, low compared to cash. But I mean, even if you talk to Buffett, He wouldn't define his way of so-called value investing strictly that way as well right Mm.
0: yeah Yeah. and nowadays i mean if you look at book values um, a lot of the values are not captured in the in the in the balance sheet yeah so most companies are trading at where well above the the price of books so accounting statements do not do not like uh, take into account like uh, customer value or you know things that you have spent marketing dollar to it's expense away, but it's not recorded in the balance sheet so yeah
2: uh, yeah yeah so i think yeah yeah I, i'm gonna pick off some of your old articles that you've written and uh, hopefully <laughs> don't worry i'm pretty sure since you wrote it is it's, it's still pretty fresh off your mind um yeah one of the earliest uh, earlier articles that you wrote was with regards to read and maybe i'll start off with a bigger picture right uh uh my guess is the fund you run has a global mandate, uh, and probably I start off with your your journey as an investor. I I if I'm if I'm not mistaken, you started off focused onto the Singaporean market, but probably where where are your uh what do you call it the direction of your fund? Uh, are you is there a big difference in the geographical dis, uh, dispersion of where you, you invest now? Is that a key criteria or you just have like a global screen to say, hey, anything that you know, fits into this criteria should be on the portfolio. Maybe you start with that.
0: Yeah, so starting with the fund. Right now, um, our fund is a global mandate. Um, we don't like have a particular weighting for each country. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We just uh, pick stocks that fit into our investing framework Mm-hmm. Um, and we think are good stocks to, to own over many years uh, what mm-hmm. we define as compounders doesn't matter where they're listed um, but typically we want them to be listed in the country with uh, good rule of law and um, strong I mean, regulations in place um, mm-hmm. but I mean concentration limits there are no concentration limits so right now our fund is mostly invested in stocks that are listed in the US mm. uh, about yeah, about eight, more than seventy percent. So about eighty percent, I think, are listed in the U.S. And mm-hmm. we have some stocks mm-hmm. that are listed in Hong Kong, some stocks that are listed in the U.K. and some in like one stock that's listed in Norway. Mm-hmm. So, but we don't like particularly say just because we have global mandate, we need to have stocks all over the world. We mm. just have a global mandate that allows us to pick and choose where we want to invest at that point of time and where where the good good investment. Uh, where the good good companies are, and it just so happens that if they're all in the u s, so be it we'll just invest all in the u s <laughs> all, yeah if they are if it's eighty percent in the u s and twenty percent is in Asia, we'll do that right uh, or I mean, based on our criteria what what we think is the best for the fund, what we think can give us the best returns. There's no like we have to invest at least ten percent Asia. there's no we don't we don't set that, that kind of limits for us
2: great, great uh in in I mean, you started off in Singapore. And maybe let let's dive into that angle first. Where do you think uh, uh, the struggles for the Singaporean capital market is? Is, is it because of the size in which it can grow through the total addressable market that you can address? That's why or somehow or rather you screen and then globally you somehow or rather 80% seems to be concentrated in the US. Is that you think is that is that the problem? I'm pretty sure your home market, you're very familiar, you know, you you grew up in Singapore, obviously you studied in Australia, but what, what what do you think are the limitations or is there any limitations to Singapore-listed uh, equities right now?
0: Yeah, I think there are. Singapore is about, I mean, if you look at it from a global perspective, Singapore is a very tiny market. So um, it's just being a small country, a small small market, there's going to be just fewer opportunities here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's only like, I think, 700 listed companies here and most of them are like tiny market caps. Mm-hmm. Um, and very little tech stocks in the Singapore market. A lot of REITs, a lot of finance, uh, a lot of energy stocks. Um, so, I mean, from an investor's perspective, if you're just going to, uh, and you have a global mandate, if you're looking around the world, Singapore, naturally because Singapore is small, you're gonna, you're gonna there be a few opportunities here. Uh, mm-hmm. and at the same time, like even the companies that are headquartered and operate in Singapore, do not want to list in Singapore also because maybe because the capital markets are not that kind to companies listed here. So they don't get very good valuations. So when mm-hmm. they do IPO, they cannot raise a lot of, they, they won't get a good valuation to raise money at. So mm. then that, that becomes a chicken and egg problem. So in the US, they are, there's, it's much more easier to market in the US and to raise more capital at better valuations. Mm-hmm. So you see like companies like Grab, see, uh decided to list, uh, grab through a, through a spec uh, and decide, decide to go through the US market. Uh, they get more exposure, they get more, they get better, Um, they get better valuations and they they can raise more money uh, in the US market. So maybe it's a chicken and egg problem. Mm, mm, mm. (laughs) So like, um, if there are more investors here, more companies will list here and then there'll be more investors here. And and so (laughs) it just, it's it's like a network effect kind of. Um, So Singapore just doesn't have that strong a network effect whereas US has. Um, And US has, naturally we have a lot of companies that decide to list there. And it's not just Singapore companies. There are a lot of, uh, companies that operate outside of the U.S. That, but want to list in the U.S. as well, too. Um, so
1: that's... Um, that's yeah. yeah. Yep. yeah. MJ, we we, are we, w- we We will know, right? There's a Grab and Kasem on our side as well who prefer to be there. Uh, <coughs> but I, I have to ask, uh, one thing that struck me, uh, like a lot of... I know it's a big debate in Singapore. A lot of people ask your leaders, right? Why... Uh, Can we have a, a leader like a world-beater kind of company, you know, uh, like the, the 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 Ubers and you know Airbnbs of this world? And I remember your 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 late uh, Prime Minister, right, Prime Minister Lee uh, Kuan Yew, when he was asked the question, right, he just smiled <laughs> and he just said, you know, uh, what's our largest export right now? Kopi Skin, something like that. So. <laughs> it was uh, making I always remember that because uh, I, I, it's seldom you see a leader so frank about their country's uh, you know limitations right so I have to ask right like you one is it still for Piyaskin? because it's been 10 years since that interview if I'm not mistaken <laughs> and number two um, like yes Singapore cannot be as big as as great, but you know, perhaps the export market, right? Um, I remember Razer was uh, touted to be one such uh, company. Yeah, but let's let answer the first question first. Yeah, I, I, can
0: you hear me properly now? There's like heavy rain in my
1: house now. Oh, you know, mm. it? yeah, it's slightly affected, but uh, it's still hearable, okay. still hearable. Yeah.
0: Okay. So um, yeah, I'm not sure why it's the main export now. I okay. don't think it's for PR skin anymore. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, Singapore. I mean, the main we don't, we don't we are not a country that is full of natural resources or anything like that. So, um, I would say that the main our main strength is in our human resource, uh, being a good country with a good rule of law. So, a lot of international countries come here and put their headquarters here. There is still a good economy running here, but and we are strong in our energy sector as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's still limitations to what Singapore can do as a country, given how small we are. Yeah, um, uh, yeah we need external investors to come over here and invest to build the economy up. Um,
2: yeah. 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 Actually, I just did a quick check. Uh, the biggest exports actually kind of mimic that of Malaysia. Uh, yeah. Twenty, I think. Pro, probably close to 30% uh, is actually in uh, integrated circuits and electronics. Right. 19% uh, of all things, uh, MJ, 19% is oil, petroleum, bitumers, distillates, except crude. Because you know, they don't yeah. have crude. So, But what they do is because they have Bukom uh, Island and they have Jurong, so they take the crude, and value refine add, distillate, right? yeah, and then refine it and then exports. Uh, so right. the rest are, uh, ooh, okay, uh, salts, Penicillin, I think, uh pharma industry, and then uh, polypropylene, which is plastics, uh, yeah. which is a byproduct of the petrochemical uh, Yeah, yeah. So I can't find popular skin though. No, I think what so, I, uh, sorry, <laughs> maybe maybe nah, I I know, re- I know. maybe I
1: rephrase. It was more to do with a, uh, a particular <laughs> company yeah. that can export something uh, like really big that size. That, right? I think that's what yeah. the prime minister was referring to. Yeah. Anyway, continue.
2: Yeah, so. Uh, yeah, uh, with, relates, uh, with regards to that about your global mandate and and you know Singapore versus Asia Pack or even global, right? Could you share with us how do you even start? I mean, you talk about just the Dow Jones alone, or or, or the S and P alone is more than you know. The U.S. markets is probably more than 30,000 kind of listed companies. So, do you start right at the top, the big mega caps, and, and and then you screen down, or all the way from the bottoms up that you look at the the small? Uh, how do you get? How do you, Get uh, stock idea yeah. generation. I think that that's how I would be. Yeah.
0: yeah. So I mean, globally there are, there are thousands of stocks to look at. Um, so it's impossible to look at everything. We we stock idea generation is based solely on reading, um, um, going to listening to podcasts such as your your podcast, uh, uh, any stock that you you talk about, we're gonna have a read or like a. Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast or, you know, uh, it's really, there's no, there's no like, there's no scientific process of, of getting stock ideas, generating stock ideas. If we don't do screens, we don't do like a low PE ratio screen because that will exclude a lot of the, I would say high growth companies, good, good stocks that are, that may, may not be earning, earning, uh, may not even be earning any money at this point in time. Mm. Um, so yeah, screens, uh, we don't do screens. We, we Really, the stock idea generation has no scientific way of doing it. We mm. really just bounce ideas off each other, uh, read articles, read blogs, read, um, read, listen podcast, read uh, the Edge magazine if you want a, a more or whatever you know. Understood. Yeah.
2: Where has been the least thought about place that you found a great stock idea, and where has been the the place where you thought that you would generate you the most idea among all, but actually finds found you the least idea. I I I hope you get the irony of that, <laughs> that, that question actually. Yeah,
0: so are you talking about geographically or?
2: Uh probably probably media-wise or even geography. I know. I mean, maybe oh. give me an example of one place where you found a great stock that you never thought that you would find in this place. You yeah. know, it could be like a a Reddit blog on, you know, talking about, you know, some, some, uh, some meme stocks that they suddenly, oh, that was a great idea there, you know? <laughs>
1: yeah. Sorry to interrupt this podcast. I know it's a little bit annoying, but I want to tell you something that I think can be really helpful to you. I can tell you're really interested in the stock market and want to learn more about it so that you actually know what you're doing, especially when today things are getting more complex and complicated. That's why we came up with the Stock Investing Blueprint or SIB. It's our signature e-learning program that teaches you how to pick the right stocks most of the time, buy and sell it at the best possible time, and manage your stock portfolio systematically. It currently has more than 10 hours of content and it's growing. You'll also be part of a group of like-minded investors that can help speed up your learning process. To hop on the program, click on the link in the description or go to learn.viral.co slash courses SIB.
0: So it was, I think Twitter was kind of surprising to me because Twitter, there's a lot of rubbish going on in Twitter. Oh, but yeah. <laughs> surprisingly, sometimes there's good stuff out in Twitter. In, in this corner of Twitter, that we call them, that people call FinTwit, FinTwit Financial yeah. Twitter. Yeah, mm, 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 mm. a lot of insightful people post good stuff there. Uh, quite insightful and can be uh, things that you don't hear about outside of the company. And they can mm. post stuff that you know, like ex-employees sometimes post long threads about about the company that they're working yeah. in, like Amazon or whatever. And, and what makes them special, and that <coughs> there's a lot of good insights there for us. Um, surprising, right? Twitter, mm. you don't expect that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah so i think that would
2: be one 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 avenue that we've found good stuff in okay That's yeah a, uh, that- yeah the the other one i wanted to ask is that how thriving or how how vibrant is the singapore investing community and do they have a like a strong preference for equities outside of singapore or do you do you find that it's quite balanced you know there are some guys that are okay to just stay in singapore or do you find that a majority of them are just happy to invest outside all the um, good ones I,
1: are in the kairos group john
2: yeah, yeah i know a That's why I, it's a kind of a yeah. real rhetorical question but <laughs> yeah, yeah
1: sorry uh, jeremy yes yeah.
0: yeah i i mean i don't know i can't speak for the whole community here but i mean from what i see I, i'm on like I follow some Facebook investing groups and like uh, um, some telegram groups and all that and the Singapore communities and yeah, some of them are, very, are quite knowledgeable in the Singapore space. So they do look in very much in the Singapore market, um, especially certain more, some of the more popular counters. Uh, a lot of REITs are very popular in Singapore, I, I would think. Uh, but yeah, I think a lot of people in Singapore are also looking outside of Singapore. Uh, to gain exposure outside of Singapore market uh, if they want exposure to more, more global, global companies or companies that are, are more like software nature, uh, software as a service companies. You can't, you can't find them in Singapore. So mm, mm. Um, I think there are, there are people who are quite open, people in Singapore who are open to investing overseas. I so see. yeah, you do get a, bit, a good mix here, I think. great. It's great. getting more popular.
2: Yeah, that's a good segue because I, I want, as I said, I want to cover some earlier articles you wrote and one of it was actually touching about, a few of it actually touched about reads, you know, and I picked up one which was uh, the t- entitled, Does Your Read Manager Have Your Interest at Heart? Maybe you want to explain a little bit more why mm. why that article was written, 2019, written December yep. 2019. So, what what sparked that, you know?
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, so, I mean, I've been looking at the reads for many years, right, since I read started writing for the Motley Fool, uh REITs were one of the big things to look at because, I don't know, we have like 40, 50 REITs in Singapore. It's a <laughs> big market. Um, so I, I wanted to find out whether the REIT managers were actually um, making decisions that benefited shareholders and mm-hmm, unit, holder, mm-hmm. unit holders. Yeah. Mm. So uh, we, I looked into an incentives uh, that REIT managers were being were. Uh, basically their remuneration packages. Mm-hmm. So we I looked into how they remunerated, what sort of performance bonuses they were getting, uh, and just compared a few of them. I, I can't remember exactly off my head like what mm. which reads were were had better packages. But basically read I, I if you're looking at a REIT incentive, REIT managers incentives, you need to look at for read managers that are not like purely incentivized based on assets under management. Uh, mm. So that those weed managers will purely will say, "Oh, let's raise more money now and let's um, let's uh, buy a new property," and and they will get remunerated more, right? Because uh, their their incentives are based purely on assets under management. So mm. you need to get weed managers that are actually incentivized based on DPU or distribution per unit growth, rather mm. than purely assets under management. So you distribution per unit growth is something that uh, ultimately affects unit holders. Mm. So. Uh, yeah, so that's the key thing I was looking at. Uh, I want to find, re- so if you're investing in REITs and you want to find managers that are heavy or interest at heart, you have to look for these REITs that, you know, they have a pay structure that that w- are in aligned with shareholders, not just, uh, just to grow the REIT for, for growing sake, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. It, it's a good point that I want to segue into a bigger question and this, I think, doesn't just apply to REITs but also uh, companies that you guys invest in. So in Singapore, it's quite, it's, I think, relatively easy for you guys to like, hey guys, uh, can I come and see you and, you know, just talk to you and and access quality of management. In this case, uh, how do you attribute uh, the weightage or quality of management in your investment judgment calls or your thesis? And is it necessary that you meet up with them? Or do you think that based on What you've read, uh, analyst briefings, or any social media appearances or uh, media appearances that they have, is enough for you to form a judgment call on the quality of management?
0: Yeah, Uh, that's a good question, actually. So, quality of management is very, I would say, it's one of the key things we look at. Um, So, we are not like, uh, we are not one of those people who say, oh, this is a good business, we don't care who's managing the company. it uh, will take care of itself. We really look at management, especially for companies that, you know, they need to execute, they need to grow their um the, they, they need to grow into their valuation, especially when you're paying up for a company. You want companies mm-hmm. that can grow and management is is one of the differentiating factors, right? So yeah, mm-hmm. I would say the first answer to the question is that, yeah, uh quality of management is very important. I, I would say uh one of the most the, the things that we look at the most, actually. Mm-hmm. Um but it, yeah it is difficult Qual- uh, qualitative things are difficult to difficult to measure i mean you can't measure it right because it's not quantitative uh, you really have to like try to get a feel try to understand the, the management so it's good that, to see a, comp- a company that has been managed like or managed by a managing team or a, man- a ceo that has been there for many for for many years so that will give us some comfort that he has been doing a good job so we look at the past record how is how has he been communicating with shareholders has he been fair to shareholders in the past? Um, uh, what sort of remuneration package does he have? Right? So uh, Charlie, I think Charlie Munger was the one who said uh, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome, right? So, hmm. so if, if the incentive is to is to uh, grow um, is to grow earnings per share or free cash flow per share, then the outcome with that uh, the, the management will make decisions to to, to, to grow that and that's important uh, for the long-term value creation for stockholders for shareholders the outcome is just to grow revenue the, the guy the management team might just be acquiring companies for no reason or mm. or, or be wasting capital right mm. uh, and yet they'll be incentivized and yet they'll be growing their growing the remuneration uh, so we, we need to look at the remuneration what they are remunerated on uh, some of them don't get any cash at all so some mm. of them get only stock-based compensation that rests over 3-4 years so that's I mean, yeah, that's dilutive for shareholders, but that is for us. That gives us alignment of uh, interest. Yeah, so if they if the stock-based compi- if their stock options are given now and then based on the exercise price, or um, and if three years down the road the exercise price is below, uh, is below the current share price, um, they are not going to. Or if it's a, if the exercise price is above the current share Nothing. price. Yeah, the the options are going to expire worthless, right? So, mm. uh, so for them, it's really they want to make sure that the stock price moves up. So that that is also, I mean, they have alignment of interest with the with the shareholders, and they, as long as it's best over a long term or the options, are uh, long term options, then those are, that that gives us some some uh, some peace or some uh, idea that the. Companies, the uh, incentives program are actually aligned with shareholders, long-term shareholders. Also, we also look at other things. We look at, um, we look at interviews. We look at we, we listen to analysts meet uh, conference calls, uh, get a feel of what they're talking about, uh, what, um, what, what is their mo- what is their motivation, what is their, um, I would say, what are they focused on doing each call? So that mm, gives you an idea mm. of what what, um, the what. What, what 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 is important to them, um, and I would say that yeah, that gives us a good idea. So uh, interviews, um, but we I would say that we don't actually all this in totality. All this information put together gives us a good idea to mm. judge management. So we actually haven't like had a need to email Jeff Brandt also, or, or like, you <laughs> know like get to know the management team personally in that sense. So uh we just put together these pieces and, and we can kind of get an idea of of how how they are like so
1: i know both if we uh, have a, sorry yep continue
0: yeah i mean if we have a chance to meet them that will be great but if not i think and we have a good feel over with the material we have online that's sufficient for us
1: i i, I know that both you and um uh, sir jing actually share a lot uh, the your, your portfolio at least you know the write up of the what's inside the portfolio and i know um it's also something like a 30 or 30 odd uh position portfolio. And so to your point about uh you know studying management and all that, how do you keep up with all the all the conference calls, all the presentations, you know, especially when you have 30 over, Do you do both of you all like split or like, you know, yeah, how do you guys do it? Um we we the
0: two of us read all the transcripts. Uh we don't split it up. So he he reads it. Uh, we both read like uh the amazon transcript for that yeah. quarter we both read google transcript alphabet transcript um i mean it's a lot of work it's um but <coughs> it's not i mean it's still manageable right we have now we have about forty forty fifty companies in total um and so every quarter we have fifty reports to read fifty transcripts wow. to read um, over a year that's two hundred right <laughs> it's not i mean we can read Four five in a day is not not really a problem, so you can finish it pretty fast. Uh, and also, we we are when we're looking at reports uh, because we've been following these companies for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, there are certain key indicators that we that we track, and uh, we don't look at every like minute detail. We look at the key indicators which give us a good picture of the company, and mm-hmm. that helps us to streamline the process of of understanding mm-hmm. the company's recent results. Um, and so, yeah, I would say it's a of work, but manageable, and g- mm. we still have time to look at other companies as well to generate new ideas yeah. hopefully i mean yeah
2: it's great uh, i mean it, it's uh, it's uh I think it's hopefully the audience actually get away with you know this uh, you guys are managing like fifty companies and there's like two hundred reports, and you can do it even uh, some of our listeners most of our listeners actually don't don't manage money on a full time basis, so in mm. a way, I was hoping that. Your encouragement, you know, uh, the the way you do gives them encouragement that you know it's it's still possible uh, that you can still manage. Uh, yeah, I'm I want to yeah,
0: yeah. I, so, I know of retail investors who who have a big portfolio. They're not full timers, but they manage to read all the transcripts as well. So if you uh, want to do it, you can do it. Okay, but if okay. you don't want, I mean, quarterly transcripts, you can maybe you can skip one or two. It's okay. You can go to like half half yearly. You know, you can do it half yearly. It's still fine. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah uh probably uh related to that was um in terms of uh in a way uh okay, I wouldn't like to assign the word for it, but a lot of your work is actually kind of like desktop. Do you actually find time to actually do uh, what we call on the ground kind of research, or do you think it's not necessary at all? In a sense that because you guys have a global mandate, I doubt you know you will fly to Norway all the way just to, to meet one mm-hmm. guy that mm-hmm. you invested there, right? <laughs> so so so, how do you balance that up, or do you think it's not even necessary with the the methods of your research and is sufficient?
0: At the moment, um, there's a lot of good information online, so mm. we do a lot of our work on the laptop and on mm. online. Um, Sometimes we do like uh, email management teams and hopefully they, they give us a response. Sometimes they mm-hmm. don't respond, right? Um, mm-hmm. But that's not a lot of the, I mean, most of the time we get most of the information just through the, our laptop. Uh, we can do a lot of research as well. Like, um, like uh, if you want to research, um, uh, at one stage I wanted to research Match, Match.com, Match mm-hmm. group, match group uh, we'll Tinder mm-hmm. one. So you can, you can do research like, what is Tinder? You just take a download and see the user interface, user experience. You think, uh, like, I mean, that kind of thing can be done uh, uh, at home as well. So mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, we invested in this company called Chipotle. Um, mm-hmm. I invested in the company many, quite a few years ago and I hadn't even tried Chipotle before. But I mean, looking mm-hmm. at the finances, you can see that this is a company that is well loved by 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 consumers. I had a chance to finally go and eat Chipotle I think a couple of years ago and it was good. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so I mean I don't think you need um it's nice to know to to have a feel of the company, have a feel of the products and have a feel of what consumers say about it and maybe get a kind of, you know, a personal chat with management. But there's a lot of things online that you can do the research. Uh are a lot of information online that, that will help out. And I don't think you it it's I mean for retail investors who are limited Mm-hmm. Uh, resources, limited time. I, I think it's still doable. It's still doable to invest in great. global companies.
1: Yeah. Great, 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 great. MJ, we have any questions? Um, yeah, actually, just more to to the to again, uh, the fifty stock portfolio is more like, how do y'all decide how much to put in? You know, I, I remember something along the line of you. You you build it over time, so then you get more confident. Then you add a little bit, maybe one two percent, one two percent. Is that is that how you guys do it, or you guys do it differently? Do um, so when we
0: started so? the portfolio, we we, we started a port, a comp, the fund with forty companies. Mm-hmm. Um, these are companies we were familiar with, companies that we had long, uh, we had confidence to grow over the long term. Um, so we, we so Sergio is a portfolio manager. He decided to bracket them up into. weightage, 2.5% weightage, 2% and 1% weightages. Mm. So, um, so yeah, so the weightages were were based on uh, familiarity um, of the company, how um, risk-reward ratio, so how how fast these companies can grow. Mm. Uh, So some of them, like even some of the 1% companies had very high potential, but maybe a little bit more risky in the sense that they were more young, more, more like we invested in Datadog at 1%. Uh, um, probably um, the thinking was that the company was still young was it's just IPO maybe 2019 we started a fund in 2020 so it had like 6-7 months of um, life as a public company there wasn't uh, I mean it it was growing fast it was good it was a decent valuation uh, I mean for, the, for its growth and it, I mean there was definitely a, a good reward potential there but there was also risky execution risk and I mean uh, the fact that it wasn't listed for a long time, so we decided to wait that one down a little bit. So mm. I, I mean, a lot of the top, a lot of that goes in the top process of of waiting, waiting the fund. And now, as the fund progresses, uh, the weightages will change based on the stock price. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we allocate capital, we will take in the, that into account, and then like uh, we don't actively manage the the weightages now, but uh, when we do add capital in, it will automatically shift the pot the, the weightages a little bit. So mm. yeah, a mm. lot of it. There's no hard science about it or, or exact like mathematical formulas that we use, but uh, mm. some some of that thinking goes behind the weightages of the portfolios.
1: Great,
2: great. I'm going to move into something that uh, MJ and I and uh, I'm very sure you as well enjoy. Uh, uh, it's about Manchester United.
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs>
2: Actually, yeah. I'm a Liverpool fan
0: though. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I'm a Liverpool fan like you. Uh, uh, the days of John
2: Barnes, Ian Rush, you know. Polymore, is it? Polymore. Yeah, yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes. Those are the days. I mean, those are the days when I was watching, uh, right? Yeah. So, but actually now more focus on the, the, the economics of, you know, a football club. You know, what, what, you know, I think what prompted you to write was actually uh, Cristiano Ronaldo signing on. Uh, obviously, MJ the MJ is a big MU fan. <laughs> so, what are your thoughts about MU? And probably, I don't know. No, I do not know whether you've done a comparison, but against the Spanish clubs, you know, the La Ligas, the the the, the Barcas, and the Real Madrid, and, and what do you think are the economics of football, and why do you think it's a good or why do you think it's a bad investment?
0: Yeah, so I wrote this article about Menu. I think um, last year when yeah. when Ronaldo first signed for Menu. Uh, and the stock price went up, you know. So I was <laughs> watching like, what what is the economics of of the com- of, uh, of a club, you know? Because yeah. uh, some of you may be surprised to know that Menu is actually a listed company, and you can actually buy shares in the company if yeah. you want to, to have a have a share in the profits <laughs> of Menu. So I was looking at that and realized that actually investing in a club is not a not really a good investment.
1: Nope.
0: I mean, compared to some of the other companies out there that are growing very fast. So um, a club has a lot of expenses to pay, wages, it has to upkeep of its, uh, of its uh, stadium. And its revenue streams are not certain. Uh, right, so it depends on fan base, it depends on uh, attracting uh, people to the, to, the, to the stadium, it depends on uh, viewership on TV, and it depends on whether you can even make it into a competition like the Champions yeah. League and all that. Yep yeah so uh so it's very lumpy cash flows um and then they also have assets they buy assets which are players right Mm. and and those players depreciate in value and then they sell them so unless they can unless those players can appreciate value then they can make some money from that from that Mm. investment so um i was looking at the at the financial statements i would say that menu to me look like a poor investment to make uh of course i mean things may change and Mm. Uh they may be very good investors of uh, assets in the future or they can buy sell players. But it's it's a difficult environment to, to do a business in. Especially when you have to juggle uh fans um uh uh you know, you have to juggle their the the fan base and their you can't make them unhappy basically. If you make them mm. unhappy, uh you try to squeeze out more profits, they are happy and then uh you lose the fan base, you lose you can't sell merchandise to them. So that's that's a very give uh, very delicate situation to be in. So yeah the, I think that <laughs> clubs are quite a difficult uh business to be in. And but I haven't looked into Spanish clubs. Uh, I think I don't think many clubs are listed. I think Spurs is listed. Menu is listed. Um mm-hmm. I think I think Spurs are listed. Um yeah. but Liverpool is privately held. Um uh, yeah I don't I don't know about the Spanish clubs. Barcelona, yeah. Real I I, I'm actually
2: looking at Barcelona's report right now while you were, you know, describing it. And uh, ooh, yeah, mm, it's one no, of the it worst. Uh, it's actually... Uh, yeah, doesn't look pretty, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, And they are privately held as well. So I don't yeah, think yeah. they're held
2: by the members, actually. They're
0: held by the members,
2: okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so just, just a quick rundown. Uh, Treasury management level, the club close. The year with sixty million euros in available cash, gross bank debt is five hundred and thirty-three million. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, it's ten times the debt. The debt size is ten times the cash they have. You know, uh, revenues are very lumpy, up and down, as you said, lah. So, yeah, you know,
1: yeah. It, it's actually it's tough.
0: It's tough business. Yeah, it yeah. is.
1: It's actually more of like a ego. How do I put it? Ah, uh, what's the word? It's a, it's like a yacht, lah, right? Um, for rich people um, they own a club or, you know, things like that. That's why, uh, you know, one team that's doing really well now is Man City because, uh, they can essentially just, uh, fake their revenues because the, the commercial revenue, right? They went from zero to, you know, now matching some of the top clubs because a lot of their revenue comes from, first of all, they have no fans, right? Let's be honest, right? So where are they (laughs) getting the commercial revenue from? And they're getting a lot from Etihad, right? Yeah. So yes, it's business, but it's just really just, you know, money being pumped in from the, 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 uh, the, the, the the, states, no, the, the, the Gulf states, right. So yeah. it's, they, it, it, they don't have to make money, but they're not like Liverpool. I'm sure, you know, you know, in the, in the old days, Liverpool, you guys had to sell just to keep, just to balance the books. Right. And uh, you know, with Man United, Continue to screw up some more. Uh, they may have to be in that situation as well, because yeah. the owners who are Americans actually want to make a profit. They actually are banking not so much on the cash flow, but on the whole brand value that someone else. It's Will it's it like off. yeah 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 it's like art or NFTs in that sense where it's someone else uh, you know who wants to buy it for more you know it's a greater fool kind of theory. That, at least that's how <laughs> I understand. Nah. Otherwise you won't you won't buy it based on the cash flow. You you. Yeah, yeah. It's very yeah. difficult because every time you generate, like for example, Barcelona is the great case where right? they were so successful. I think in the late two thousands, uh, leading up to the early to twenty tens, every time they had successful, so they had to spend like another hundred million on a new player because they need to continue continuously reinvest, and so that that's not favorable for for investors who want capital efficiency, that's what I That's add. How, do you amortize a player? Just yeah, curious, you do. Or you or? do. A, if I'm not <laughs> mistaken, it's the biggest play, right? cost. Is the biggest cost for yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Interesting. I don't know how the how the tax department or how usually the amortization and depreciation is determined by either your tax accountants or the <laughs> Actually this what, one what would is be the street I
1: think it's the street. <laughs> what do you call that? Uh it's the length of the contract. And then you also ah. got the you also got the pay. Ah. So they front right, like rental, you know, when they depreciate rental, so to speak. Uh and then the cost of the player lah. Which is sometimes spread over or lump sum, so they were they were. It's very complicated because each deal is so complex. Many
2: correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I was just looking at the balance sheet of uh, Barca and uh, you know their their season budget, you said. Yeah. Yeah. Now you know why <laughs> they, have mm-hmm. they have to
1: sell yeah. Messi. Messi go. Yeah. 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 It's insane, man. It's insane.
2: Yeah. Okay. The uh, player, ca- yeah, the sorry, players sharing? are all like uh, on the free cash flow on the cash
0: flow statement. They all. Uh, lumped under capital expenditure.
2: I think. Yeah. yeah. The players, yeah. <laughs> and then they will amortise that cost over time. Yeah. Exactly. Great. Um, too bad Liverpool isn't isn't coming up anytime soon. sooner, uh, you know, I. It's like Jeremy. You know, I. Uh, those were the days. Uh, you know, when, <laughs> when you know, football wasn't run on very big money. Big money, but not as big money as it is today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But so, Liverpool's
0: doing well now.
2: Though. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. It's a tight
1: race. It's quite a tight race. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah. So coming back to stocks, and uh, probably uh, one thing that I really want to touch on. There's two, two, three main things I still want to touch on. Uh, first one, I think I would start with uh, valuations. Because um, as I earlier alluded to, uh, when you, know, you join the Motley Fool, and the way they look at valuations, especially for growth kind of companies, are slightly different from... You know, your net nets guy, your balance, uh, you know, just uh, balance sheet analysis analysis kind of, kind of valuations. Uh. So, maybe could you give an example of a stock that you initially thought was a little bit valued at too high, but because you love the quality of the management, you just like, hey, you know, uh, maybe valuations can be uh, adjusted in a way that, you know, I, I'm, I'm taking a bet right now because of the growth rate and, and it turned out well, and probably one that maybe you paid too high of a valuation. That it did not turn out so well.
0: Okay. Um, I looking at it from a from our fun or from my personal portfolio. I either
2: way. Either one. You know? Yeah. Your best, your best and uh, your your best one and you're probably your lousiest one, lah, regardless of whether it's a fun or you know, your personal
0: I think yeah, from our fun perspective, it's a bit short now to to give it like a, say it didn't turn out well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah we had we have had some optically looking expensive stocks that we bought, like the trade desk um that we bought at forty five dollars a share
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, now it's up to maybe even after the the real uh stock crash in the, the last couple of months is still up about forty fifty percent in the in the mm-hmm. half. so mm-hmm. i mean you see uh so we we don't know how that would turn out. it's still short uh, it's still a short okay. time frame um yeah. but that shows that uh People are willing to pay up for a company that has a long-term growth potential with very durable growth advantages. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of company that has done badly, uh, <laughs> let me think from my personal portfolio because uh, that 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 my personal portfolio I've liquidated everything now. But uh, mm-hmm. I've um, uh, I, I liquidated everything before we launched the fund, but. I'm sure I've had some big losers out there that look cheap, mm-hmm. but they do mm-hmm. well, right? So let mm-hmm. me think. Uh, okay, like so like for example, I invested in a company called New Group in Singapore. Mm-hmm. Uh Neo Group was uh trading at a PE ratio of about 19. Okay. Uh, it does um so one nine, right? So it does mm-hmm. uh, food catering in Singapore. It was Food catering is a highly fermented industry in Singapore, but mm-hmm. it was one of the top top ones in Singapore and probably the highest market share uh, when I first purchased it in 2014 or something like that. Okay. Unfortunately, I mean, it looked cheap. It looked like it, it was growing its top line pretty decently. I mean, it was growing like maybe 15, 20% at the time. But the management team decided to take on too many things. So uh, they decided to move into. Uh, food manufacturing, low low margin businesses that kind of diluted the business and and and, and investors kind of lost, lost confidence in the company. So I bought it at $0.90, cents, had to get rid of it at, uh, I think, $0.60 per mm, uh, mm. share. Uh, so mm. I made a, quite a hefty loss on that um, considering, but the, the company was kind of, uh, the quality of the business was dropping because of uh, a little bit of dilution. What Peter Lynch would call diversification, right? Yeah, moving into businesses that have lower margins. Yeah, the I mean the the, the addressable market was much bigger, and if it could execute, it would be good. Uh, the absolute dollar profit could have improved, but um, yeah, it was uh, too difficult of a business for them, I think. And they eventually took the company private. Maybe the com- maybe the founder felt that the, the the shares were undervalued, and he could do a bit. Like investors were not were not. Um, we're not appreciating the business enough. But yeah, it kind of goes to show that even if the company is trading at a so-called cheap valuation, if management makes decisions that investors don't like, uh, we end up with a share price that reflects that.
2: Okay. Probably yeah. what would have been the stock that surprised you the most? <laughs> In a way, right. You know, you, yeah, that means you, you, you bought it. You knew there was some growth, okay, a very accelerated growth. But then all of a sudden, it just really just blew your mind away. It's like, you know, after, after uh, like you were said, maybe in your fund, um, uh, it's a little bit too short, but maybe in your personal capacity. I, I know for surging, was Netflix. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: surging was, that was a big one, right? Netflix. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, I, I don't have uh, such. I, I only started uh, investing for my personal portfolio in 2014, right? So that was mm. seven years ago. Mm. Uh, and I started mostly in the Singapore market. So the the first stock I bought actually was the one that kind of surprised me. So it was Riverstone <coughs> Holdings. It's actually a company hey. that has a dual listing, right? Dual listing in, uh was it dual listing or oh, no? Top Club has a dual listing, but mm. but it's uh, Riverstone. is listed in Singapore, but it's it's operations for all in Malaysia. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So um, I think within the first year, the stock quadrupled in price. Mm. Right. Oh. Um, it's kind of a very cyclic, a bit of a cyclical business because uh, they depend a lot on raw materials costs and um, and and that can move up and down a lot. Commodity prices move up, moves up and down, um, and then margins can improve and improve. And but I mean, overall, the 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 business was actually moving up quite mm. steadily. So they are building new production capacity lines. Riverstone is a very Steady company it gives a steady dividend as well, uh, and they continuously build product, new production lines. I think now they're up to ten billion. Uh, at the point when I purchased it, they could build, They could. They had a capacity of five billion gloves. I think five billion gloves at the time, and now mm-hmm. they're up to ten billion, so double capacity. Uh, and they're slowly like every uh, every few years they're building more capacity, and and the, and and the, and, the, and the 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 world is soaking up the capacity, the, the, the the demand, right? Uh, clean, clean room gloves uh, they're especially in clean room gloves and now they move into healthcare gloves mm. so healthcare gloves I mean there's a big need for it especially during the COVID period where we saw a, a large uh, spike in uh, demand for that I think the, the demand has come down a lot but over time I mean gloves are rubber gloves and healthcare gloves clean room gloves are going to there's, there's going to be a continued need for these gloves and, and yeah so Riverstone surprised me it went up so fast mm. um, of course it, it, then it stagnated a while and then during COVID, it went back up, went up again. So, I mean, it's quite surprising at the speed. You can tell, you can, it goes to show that stock prices don't move in a straight line up. Yeah, uh-huh. they, they, they move up suddenly and then they stagnate and then move up suddenly again and then they come down and move up. So, you need to be invested in long term. Like, I also invested in Hourglass.
1: Huh? Mm, nice.
0: Okay. Hourglass is a, com- is a company that's listed in Singapore, it's a luxury watch uh, retailer. Uh, invested at 60 cents per share didn't do anything right for Mm, mm, mm. for like five years and in 2021 it just suddenly shot up so yeah i think the the in singapore there's a uh, i think a lot of counters do not get a lot of attention so uh, sometimes they may be undervalued for long periods of time maybe five Mm. years six years and also if the company is not Doing anything with the capital, not returning capital to to shareholders, not paying off good dividends, then no one's taking interest in the company. Mm. Uh, so Hourglass, I think, it got a lot of interest last year, especially when the luxury watches were, you know, had another big break again in the demand for luxury watches. So, and the company decided to also up their share, up their dividend payout, mm. and so that also made investors take interest in the company. So yeah, that goes to show, like you know you you have to be patient with these companies. Even though their business was, was growing every year, uh, mm. but no one took interest. So the company yeah. was stagnating. Uh, share price stagnating. Earnings was going up. NAV per share was going up, but the uh, uh, share, share, uh, share just price didn't was just didn't move. Yeah, yeah. But it just shot up like 300% in one year after that. Yeah. yeah. What was
2: your worst kind of like... Uh, um, I wouldn't say a mistake, but learning. Uh, what, probably what was your biggest yeah. learning and, and <laughs> where was the, the biggest blind side of a stock that you, you kind of missed either in terms of valuation or maybe bottoms up kind of research that you kind of got blindsided and then, you know. Uh,
0: yeah, so when I liquidated my portfolio before starting the fund, I think my, some of my biggest losses were maybe two companies, ARA Asset Management and uh, Chip- Chipotle. Mm. I actually sold Chipotle too early. Ah, right? yeah. So I sold. Chip, I bought Chipotle at five hundred per share, uh, or five hundred fifty per share, and I sold it at four hundred eighty. So at the time, uh, Chipotle was going through a very rough patch. We had a mm. so Chipotle. I think just a bit of background for your listeners. Uh, Chipotle yeah. uh, is a Mexican uh, Mexican fast casual dining chain in America. Uh, mostly in America there are some outlets in the UK and um, other parts of the world, but mostly uh, most of their outlets are all in the u s right mm, mm. so they had a, uh, they had an e coli, I say, uh yeah. e coli outbreak so that's a kind of a bacterial outbreak uh, mm. in one of the in one of their outlets and then it spread to a few outlets because I think a supplier had some issue right and then they had another nova nova, 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 nova virus outbreak. So I think uh, 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 that was a viral kind of uh, infection that spread to some of the customers as well. Mm. And for some reason, uh, this had a, this had a very bad knock-on effect on the business. People were uh, worried that uh, it was dangerous to eat AAA. I think some people actually got very sick. You know, so mm. from from having long queues in the outlets to a place where there was no queues at all, and it was mm. almost like a ghost town. So soft price really went down. Uh, the, the founder, Steve Ells, was struggling. He, I would say struggling, but he didn't exude a lot of confidence to investors and uh, same thought sales were going down. They they recorded their first ever quarterly loss, I think, during that time. And, and before that, it was always profitable. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so I sold the company mm, <laughs> at the mm, time mm. thinking like, Okay, this, this the thesis has completely changed, right? Uh, now nobody wants to go to this AAA this uh AAA anymore. Uh, uh, no one loves the no one no one is uh, everybody's scared to eat in, in, in AAA. Um but that but that was but AAA actually managed to turn his business around. So after I sold it at four hundred eighty, AAA is now trading at above thousand a thousand dollars a share. Mm, so mm. so the business has really taken off. Uh, so one thing there was a few lessons I think I wrote about this before there's a few lessons I learned about this from this experience is that if you have a good product right uh, especially for uh, Mm. F&B people will eventually come back and Mm. consumers have a short term memory and they're very forgiving Uh, Mm. especially uh, if you after you execute over another one or two years without any incident people Mm. will forgive you right Mm -hmm. And, and customers will come back so I think there were many other cases like Taco Bell also had a a scenario of a food scare, and 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 they came back stronger after that. Uh, yes, there was some a period of uh, challenges for them, but they came back stronger. And if I had given Chipotle a bit more time, give the management team a bit more time, there was a switch in CEO, by the way. So Steve Els left, and uh, I can't remember his name off my head. Uh, mm. um, but he came in and he did a very good job. So I see. Uh, so yeah, you have to give them time to to execute, and if the product is good.
2: Yeah, just a supplementary question to that. How long is the time because it could be there's this joke among uh, I don't know uh, among Singaporean investors but a lot of Malaysian investors we this is a cycle, uh, this joke that goes around in the circles is that they buy on hope making to uh, to turn around and make a quick buck but uh, in the end they end up becoming long-term investors. <laughs> they buy with the hope that you, you know they can they can flip but in the end end up to become a long-term investor. So I think the, the question uh, anchors around because it's a bottom-up approach, how long do you give management a period for them to turn around something? So if they, they're into, they're on the operating table right now, what yeah. is a fair timeline for you to, 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 for you to get them, to allow them to get their act together, put it this way?
0: I think it depends, right? So hmm. like for AAA, I gave them some time, I gave them a year, a uh, year plus and and. and the business was coming back, but it wasn't like as good as I expect, uh, as I hoped for. Um, mm-hmm. But if I waited a bit longer, it would have um, it would have done a much better job. Uh, I, I mean, the business would have like uh, I would have seen the business skyrocket, and earnings per share would have gone up a lot, and same sales would have uh, operating margins would have skyrocketed back up to the to like almost peak level, so almost pre pre like uh, pre outbreak level. So. Uh, it depends. So, like new group, I gave them to, a lot of time, and and they didn't do well, and they continue not to do well. So, you really have to make a judgment on. And I think there's no exact science. You have to read up. Mm-hmm. You have to look at it from a individual perspective, individual company perspective, uh, and the quality of the product and the competitive advantage that they have as a product, as a business. Mm. Um, if that if that's all in place, then um, they have a better chance of doing well. If there's not, if they if they, have, they don't have the other competitive advantages, then maybe it'll be more challenging for them to turn the business around. Um,
2: yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah.
0: so I think I, there's a, it's not an exact...
2: Uh, yeah, it's it's subjective. La. It's a judgment call. i put it this way. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, MG, any questions? Yeah, I mean... I'm, before like, I move uh, on to... Uh,
1: yeah. I, I mean, I, I know this is more for the very last question that we have planned, but I uh, just want to tease a bit about, on how do you... How how are you managing the emotions? Just not uh, you know, when all of this were happening? Cause I can imagine this is not something that you anticipated. And so yeah, I just want to get a sense of uh what it was like.
0: Um yeah, so emotionally of uh of course there will be a little bit of uh worry uh mm. when you're looking at your know, stocks go down, especially at the time I was still a new investor. They want to lose money, you know. They have a lot of money, (laughs) Mm -hmm. so there's definitely worry. um, But I think if you have a good framework in place, a good investing um, like checklist in place, that and you are confident about the way about your style investing, and you know that you trust the process, you know, then that worry all goes away, and and you just make decisions based on um, that. You make decisions based on, based on a very analytical approach. Then you can put the emotions aside and it kind of suits you, suits your own suits your own uh, worries. So you must have that. You must have that um, uh, framework in place. Yeah. If not, you're gonna you're gonna worry yourself sick. You
1: you think there being is. a doctor help? I don't know. <laughs>
0: um, I would say I would be more worried if I was a doctor right? because uh, if you yeah. make a mistake, you'll be someone Fatal. might die. So, so maybe, uh, so maybe when it comes to stock, I'm much more relaxed. You know, yeah, <laughs> the, so worst that, the worst help. that can happen is you lose a bit of money, uh, yeah, but you yeah. just try to keep keep calm.
1: Yeah, you know?
2: yeah, yeah. Uh, the the CEO's name for Chipotle now is uh, Brian Nicole.
0: Yeah, Brian Nicole. A, yeah, that slipped my yeah. mind. Yeah, you he's been doing I, he's been doing a great job, yeah. and we have yeah we have Chipotle in our portfolio as well.
1: Great.
2: Uh, I'm going to move on to China, uh, something that I know you're invested in. Uh, I think one of the latest articles you touched on was actually JD and Alibaba. So give, a, give us your thoughts on, um, you know, you mentioned very early on in the podcast that you invest in companies where uh, uh, countries actually, uh, where it's listed where countries actually respect the rule of law. And I think in China, with the recent, you know, clampdowns, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of nuances which I'd like to hear your thoughts on. And what are the risks in China and how do you mitigate them investing in China?
0: Yeah, so, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I personally, I mean, I I don't spend a lot of time looking at macro picture, but when it comes to China, you do have to look at what's going on in the country. And China is a very unique case in that uh, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party has been like... um, Putting a lot of different regulations in place and trying to uh, make it more into a, a country that doesn't focus on corporate profits and is trying to encourage more more of a like a social aspect to to businesses, and that can hinder businesses like in terms of maximizing profits, etc. Uh, so a lot of a lot of uh, people have been staying away from China, and I think rightly so because of all the regulatory risks involved. Right uh, at any point in time, Xi Jinping and uh, the, the country can 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 create new regulations that make it harder to for a company to make profits. Especially if you see in the education sector and in, in China, uh, and there has been not just the education sector, the industri- uh, uh, insurance industries, the tech industries have all taken a hit um, because of some uh, some regulations that have been put in place uh, for them. So I think from that perspective, if you look at it and that risk of of new regulations coming in, uh, China is. Going to become much more difficult to invest in. Uh, but, at, but if you look at uh, Tencent's recent results, um, they had they they have a, had a hit to their uh, margins this year. Uh, mm. Revenue went up, but margins decreased. I mean, uh, there's some structural change uh, in the business. But I think Tencent. Uh, I, I I think Pony Ma was saying that uh CEO Ma was saying that um, it, it, he thinks that's for the good of, of over the long term for sustainable growth mm. uh, yeah, so it remains to be seen i mean if they if China does or if the China government doesn't impose too much too heavy regulations and mm. allows for the tech sector or the industrial companies to keep on growing and not hinder them too much, um, I think it, that there can be it can still be an investable space. Uh, China mm. can still be an investable space. We do hold some Chinese companies in our comp- in our portfolio, mm-hmm. like Tencent and and, uh, uh, and Meituan. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think you have to be mindful of the risk. And so for us, we, we are happy with ha- having a, I would say like a under ten percent portfolio uh, exposure to China. Mm-hmm. We don't have too much, you know. China mm-hmm. has a good, has a I think has a good rule of law, but the law can change. And yeah. the law changes and regulations, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's 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 something to be mindful. Of, really. Yeah, we we do think about.
2: Yeah, uh, probably just one nuance uh, deeper with regards to China. Um, so this is going around, especially in the uh, okay. So, some retail investors who may not be uh, uh, understanding the nuance too much, but for those who understand, there's always this debate about variable uh VIE structures. Of, of Chinese companies and then ADRs, uh, American depository receipts that you buy. So they say that if you buy, uh, you know, there's this general uh, 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 thought process that if you buy the Alibaba listed in Hong Kong, it's much safer than buying the ADR in, in US. And, you know, probably help, help me refute. Uh, this or help me agree with this, <laughs> what what are your thoughts on it? You know, because this there's, there's many school of thoughts and I want the listeners to hear you know both sides of the story. You know, I, I'm neutral about it. Uh, I'm not too uh, what do you call it comfortable with the VIE structure, but obviously they are proponents and they are also opponents. So so maybe can you share your thoughts about it?
0: Yeah, so from my understanding if you invest in uh and correct me if I'm wrong, but if you yeah. invest in the Hong Kong uh, listed stocks right so if you invest in the US listed stocks of ADR so ADRs of China companies you actually listed yes. you actually have a economic interest in a VIE entity or a variable interest entity that's listed that that is structured in the Cayman Islands that has an economic interest in the China company Correct. So con- yeah so that's a convoluted structure and actually if you invest in the Hong Kong so Alibaba has two right so it has one that's listed in the US and one that's listed in Hong Kong so if you invest in the one that's listed in Hong Kong you are also getting the economic interest of the VIE in, in Caymans or whatever uh, country that this is uh, this, this entity is, is uh, structured at that mm. eventually has a, so they still have that convoluted structure but the mm. risk of uh, American ADRs or, or, or US listed companies is a delisting risk um, that um, that some that China is threatening to force all companies to delist in the US. So mm-hmm. that's the risk there. Uh, I think Hong Kong has less so of a risk. So the mm-hmm. Alibaba stocks the, are not facing delisting pressures there. And I don't know whether the delisting risk will, will materialize. And I think it has a low. I mean, I, I, I can't can't say for sure. But yeah, so that but I mean that's the that's the main risk. But in terms of the structure, I think they're very similar structure in terms of Hong Kong and the US listed ones. They both are uh, go through the VIE okay uh,
2: okay yeah yeah cuz you know i mean when i was reading and and, and stud- studying it right i'm mm-hmm. like my god if a retail investor who uh just beginning to you know to touch water and to understand this right if, uh, you know even uh, financial statements are they already finding a struggle and then here they are pop
1: you know here's here's another interesting structure for you to study right yeah, is it, yeah so totally is it, the you guys are talking about VIE So I had to head off just now a little bit but it's about the VIE structure right are you guys talking yeah, about?
2: yeah yeah I was asking Jeremy uh, because right, I was right, right. I started off the question with uh, China and the context of the rule of law and then I I nuance it a little bit deeper to you know to try to say mm-hmm. if, if we are buying into it is that, uh how is it pertinent and this is actually leading to the next question is it pertinent for the retail investor to really really understand it deeply mm-hmm. or we just like mm-hmm. trust that the governance either through SEC either through the Hong Kong Stock Exchange or Central Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm will not pull simply just pull the plug, uh, the delisting the, the just unnecessarily. Uh. I think that, that's the question, the final question I want to yeah. ask Jeremy on this. Uh.
0: Yeah, so we wouldn't know that. Um, that I mean, everybody's worried about the risk. So I think that um, the risk is small. I think um, recently, the Chinese government has come out to, to give it a little bit of confidence that uh, they will want to support this uh, structure, the VIE structure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was a couple of weeks ago and then some of the share prices, uh, the VIE structure. So some of the uh, share prices of these companies actually shot up, I think, mm, the China mm. companies. So if you if you, if you you notice, I think like Tencent went up like 20% or 25% on or a single day, made twice yeah, as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, so I think there's a lot of um, incentive for the Chinese government to support this, uh, give, mm-hmm. give investors confidence, investors confidence to continue to put money into China. Um, mm. But yeah, you, you won't know what will what happen. is like they're willing to just put a plug on the education sector. So,
2: yeah.
1: Yeah. so you have yeah. to. I have a, a I, have a, I have a comparison. I, I don't know whether this is the right comparison, but at least on the surface, it seems to me to be that that way. And I know you've also looked at Amazon before. Um, so happened happened are in the same industry with some, I would say somewhat similar conditions in that the whole idea, the whole principle of the VIE structure is that it gives uh, the for, give foreign shareholders economic rights, but not governance rights. That's the whole yep. principle, right? You get the dividends, you get all that, but you don't get a say. Um, similarly for Amazon, though, it's not a like for like, from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff Bezos doesn't own like that much shares of uh, Amazon, but yet his governance rights as a percentage is actually a lot higher than his actual mm. shares. Am I right to say that? Are you aware of that?
0: Yeah, so a lot of tech companies have dual share classes. Mm. So they have share class A, share class B, mm. and uh, the ones that are open to the public are usually like the the share class that has lower voting rights. Mm. So the the ones that have high voting rights are are reserved for the insiders or the uh, uh, CEOs and management team directors, so, um, and that gives them the voting power. So most of them like if they if they hold it if they decide to go with a dual share class then they want to hold the power the voting the voting power I think the VIE structure besides the governance they, there's also the risk that um, China may just completely say oh this uh, VIE structure is illegit- illegitimate right yeah and yeah. then uh, you don't even get the economy rights to to the to the, the, yeah, the yeah, companies yeah, so yeah, that, yeah that's the risk that people are taking la. so okay, yeah okay um, I mean we we do own Hong Kong listed shares which which, which go through the same route but which I think uh the risk is, is small for
2: that. Great, great. Uh I'm moving on to the last two main themes that I wanna get from you. And uh, probably the first one it's actually about portfolio strategy. I know you did allude to some during the uh, uh the podcast, which is like now you hold roughly forty to fifty uh on average, your higher four, two and one. Uh, am I am I correct? Four percent, two percent yeah. and one so percent. So we started right? with four percent, two percent,
0: uh four 4%, 2.5%, 2%, and 1%. Yeah, but now ah. it's all over the place. Okay.
2: So maybe um, there's this article you wrote on on the three portfolio uh, management strategies that you wanted to adopt. And uh, uh, mind the size, manage the risk. But the interesting one that I wanted to, to probably dig deeper was keeping cash in hand. And you said that you usually keep about 5% uh, total capital, invested capital as cash. When do you? When was the last time that you fully deployed it, and and uh, do you think that once the market rebounds, what is the pivoting moment that you will still put uh, puts you back on the on a position where you hold that five percent in cash again?
0: Okay. Uh. Actually, I don't remember writing the five percent in cash. <laughs> but yeah. uh. Yeah. We actually haven't been holding cash for our fund. Uh, mm. So, uh, as an equity fund, we we plan to be fully invested. Uh, if you mm-hmm. want to hold cash, uh, our investors tend to hold some cash, right? So when mm. the stock market is down, then they, they can put their cash in our equity fund. So to them, the fund is like their equity their equity exposure. But if mm-hmm. you're managing your own portfolio, um, it might be very different style of investing, right? You might want to hold some cash in case, uh, uh, in case there's a bad market or I mean, but we don't owe cash because we don't want to time the market as well. Mm-hmm. So even as a retail investor, the last time I hold very little cash and I try to be fully invested because I don't want to time the market. Because you don't want to miss out on a, on a good day, right? Yeah. You don't want to miss out yeah. on a bull run. And if you look at historically, um, historically, um, it's a bull market. Like it's like a hundred-year bull market, right? So I mean, like over long-term, stocks have been going up for over the last hundred years or so or since the start of recording history for S&P. So if, you, so if you're holding cash, you're just missing out on that. So uh, of course, the periods are down, like maybe 10, like I think the Great Depression had like 20 years where um, stocks went below their all-time highs and took so long to recover. But it took like 15, 20 years to recover. But uh, most of the times, the bear markets are short and like you hmm. can recover within the next uh, few years. So uh, for me, I think holding cash it's kind of uh, in the long term, it will be detrimental to a portfolio. Uh, but if you can like, for, get lucky and then just deploy the cash at a lower price point, then, then that would be good. I mean, that would be a, a, just a good luck for you. Luck. Yeah. But for me, it's hard for us. for us, it's hard to time it. So we try not to hold cash um, and unless we find no opportunity in the market. So if there's no opportunity in the market, then we will we'll maybe liquidate some and, and hold some cash. Um, but, uh, so far, uh, searching eyes, uh, we don't, we hold very little
1: cash. Great. I have a follow up to that actually. How do you, you, for yourself personally, and also with searching, how do you handle? So, I mean, if you have so low cash, right, I mean, it's just statistically more likely that your volatility should be higher than, yeah, it should be higher than if you didn't, or than if you did hold cash rather. And also, you have you have uh, outside investors, right? So, when um, volatility happens, like maybe early this year, uh, how do you handle yourselves, and how do you handle outside investors?
0: Um, yeah, so volatility is um, going to be a issue uh, in the fund. Um, I think it's going to be a big issue. Uh, I mean, not a big issue, but it's. It's, going to, it's definitely going to come up now and then, right? Because volatility, especially when you are fully invested and you don't hold cash. So if you hold cash, there's always going to be that buffer to protect you against some volatility. But if you're fully invested, there's going to be much more volatility, much more bigger drawdowns. Uh, so the way we deal with it is basically, as a person, as an as investor myself, I'm very prepared for volatility. I know that I expect volatility. I, I prepare myself mentally that there's going to be volatility. Interest rates go up stocks are going to come down uh, uh, for the time being before when interest rates go back down and then stocks will go back up. So I'm, I'm actually prepared for volatility. But I think the key thing is to make sure that anybody who invests in the fund, we prepare them for the volatility, we pre- prepare them for that. Uh, this is our strategy, we, hold a, we don't hold cash. Um, our fund is going to be volatile. Um, there's no cash buffer to buffer us against volatility. Uh, you have to be prepared for that. And investors need to be need to know and need to have the same mind, same framework of thinking as us, and same investing philosophy as us before <laughs> the investment. So uh before we accept any investors, we explain to them, we make we we don't make them read, but we encourage them to read our, our owners' manual, uh let them know how we invest, make sure which we describe very clearly that how our investing style is that if, if the stock market is down, we expect to be down as well. And we expect to be equally volatile or even more volatile considering the, the kind of strategies that we, that we employ. So I think it's about preparing both ourselves and our investors uh, and making sure that everybody has the right mental framework and mental um, preparedness uh, to, to overcome right. such, such, a, such situations as, as is happening now right, with uh, growth stocks.
2: Yeah. Yeah, have you been questioned uh, by your potential investors about the owner's manual or not? Did they say, I need to you know, in Hokkien, they say, wow, so many criteria or whatever. Ha- has that happened? Uh,
0: uh, not really, actually. A lot of people, have, um, if they don't like our owner's manual, they, they won't invest with us. If they, if they like the style, if they read it and they think, yeah, this is something we, we agree with, something that our, the philosophy that we, we share, um, then they'll be happy to to chat with us more, so uh, the the uh, the response from to the manual has been good. <laughs> a lot of mm. people think that it's very good. Um, I I don't know if you read it before, but uh, people We'd love for copy. Actually, you know. Yeah, uh, we can we don't have a printed copy, but we have a soft copy. Yeah, on the online. So people um, gives them a good idea of how, how our style, how we think, and. Uh it just prepare them, you know. We want all investors to be mentally prepared for, right. for for investing in us.
2: Yeah, great. Um I just have one last question before uh you know uh you know all good things need to come to an end. But I have one uh but before that, MJ, do you have any questions?
1: Yeah, I actually just Jeremy? one last. I actually have been waiting since the beginning to ask this, but I know I can only ask this right at the end uh, because uh you know, start, start some fire right at the beginning, right? Uh, but I, I believe this is the most controversial question. I, I look forward uh, to your answer and, you know, perhaps some of the response for the Kairos people. So obviously Surging is your partner, right? And and obviously if he's your partner, there are a lot of things that you all see eye to eye with, the way you invest, the way you do things, all that. But are there things that you guys disagree on? Do you guys have different opinions? You can either say, it can be anything, right? Because Um, it doesn't have to be investing related the way you see the world and all that or maybe a particular stock in the past that you've looked at or even currently where you're like he thinks he's A you think he's not A
0: Uh, so um, mm. (laughs) yeah that's a that's a great one for now I think we are very much aligned right the way we invest uh, I think we've in the past we've invested he's invested (coughs) in many different stocks that I've not invested in um, at the time maybe I was thinking like invest in Netflix. I was thinking like a lousy company, you know <laughs> uh, thinking uh, how much? I mean, content is so expensive, you know, how can it become cash flow positive? But but yeah, I've actually grown to think differently about Netflix. So actually he's kind of influenced me in the sense. Um, and and yeah, the invest and but right now, uh, looking at the, the the investments that we make, we we do discuss about uh, stocks uh, on a daily basis, me and searching, uh, and come up with new ideas. A lot of the times we we, we do come up with the, to the, with the same uh, conclusion about a stock. Uh, so even though we do our research separately, we do come up with the same conclusion. But sometimes, uh, some stocks we may have slightly different opinions in terms of valuation, in terms of... So we can we sometimes discuss that and I'll bring it up to him. Um, and we do bounce ideas, and then he will, he will take that into account as well so but ultimately um, this our, our our working relationship is very good. Uh, so me and Surging Serging is a portfolio manager. I'm the analyst, so i I we discuss talks, but I, and Serging is the one who makes all the portfolio decisions, and I'm happy to I trust him completely to make the final decision on on the investment portfolio so uh, I would say that uh, because of because of that trust I'm able to uh, leave it up to him and sleep well at night uh, <laughs> you know uh, and, and, and a lot of things I do agree with him so there's no, there's no not a challenge for me to we don't like fight I want this stock in the portfolio or, <laughs> you know <laughs> or I don't why do you invest in this one so it doesn't it just doesn't happen so far but if, it, if I feel strongly about it we'll, yeah, we, we will discuss
2: all right. Yeah, great. Any more? Uh, no, I'm good. I'm good. On to you. Yeah. yeah. So probably the last one, and I think more of, uh, this one is definitely for the audience. Um, we have quite a unique uh, demographics, uh, Jeremy. So, you know, maybe just, just for your context and understanding, we we wanted we started this channel with trying to help the 20 to 30-year-olds because we knew how hard it was to get uh, quality content and to get uh, you know a lot of there's a lot of information, but how, how do you nuance it and you know consolidate this information? So maybe an advice to someone who was new to your to your field, and I thought this was very pertinent to you because you were an MBBS uh, graduate, you know, trying to find your way. Uh, thank God you had your neighbour in a way. Uh, thank God you bumped into surging. So what would you advise a young? Let's say anyone MBBS ka JD ka uh, 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 Bachelor's of Law degree, you know, uh, you know, it, it's so it so happened that you know so ironic. This morning, my brother-in-law called me at at seven in the morning, seven thirty. Uh, I haven't even told MJ this, asking me about stocks. So like, I got to be shocked. So so. <laughs> so give me another Jeremy.
1: twenty minutes. I'll, I'll wake up. You know. Just yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. So so maybe. Jeremy, how would you advise someone who is fresh, about to, about to take his, foot, his or her foot into this, either uh, being an active manager or either taking charge of their own uh, stock portfolio? What would be a good starting point and how would you advise them to slog on or continue?
0: I think if you are just coming out of uni and you wanna, and you are starting to get money savings and you want to manage your own investment portfolio, I think it's yeah it's important to start early, um, but you cannot you have to read and you have to uh, understand the stock market before before starting. So I mentioned the book One Hour Wall Street that that that's a good book to start um, with the investing basics. Um, that will give you uh, the general knowledge on how on what is a stock. <laughs> so what and what to look for in a stock, and then after that you have to read up. I think it's important to just read up as much as you can about. Uh, stocks in general and there's so many good sub-stacks, there's so many good uh, uh, investment websites like Motley Fool, Seeking Alpha um, and, and just look at uh, company results, company presentations, even starting with the most basic ones like REITs, I think that gives you a good stepping stone on what to look at um, and they have good presentation slides and then you can just Google the terms, you know. That will give you a good idea of how to start. And if you so managing own own portfolio, I think you either you do it the hard way, which is do it yourself, or you, uh, or or and just keep reading and and understanding. Um, uh, or you can just uh invest in ETFs, you know. And for those people who want to do it professionally, I think, uh, yeah, you just have to read, and then hopefully you get a lucky break like me, or if you, or if you can, you can. Uh, I think um, a good place to to get your name out there is to actually write blogs start off Mm. with with creating content out and hopefully gaining some traction Uh, so I know of some young guys who started really good blogs uh, like I can't remember off the top of my head but um, yeah it just like um, uh, it also kind of crystallizes your thoughts and gets your name out there and I, I know of people who have hired because they like the blogger so mm. they like the blogger and they hired the guy. So mm. <laughs> so it can be it can be uh can be a good place to start. But Great. I mean yeah, it's a lot of work. So you guys yeah. uh, it's content creators like yourself uh, do a lot of hard work.
1: Yeah, yeah, but we talk Thanks. only. La, that's the thing, la. We don't write. Yeah, yeah, we should yeah. write more. Uh, write is well. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Just <laughs> talk another level it, man. together, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Only source one when you yeah. talk, you know. Sometimes, yeah, yeah, Yeah. Content, oh. yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah so probably the last one is. Um, if you want to be found, uh, that that is if, uh, uh, if you want to be found, where, where can people find you? Uh, you know, I, I, I know you mentioned to me your LinkedIn profile was kind of like, kind of outdated yeah. because you, yeah. you're still an analyst at Galilee Investment Management. Oh, <laughs> actually, than... no, actually,
0: yeah, that's my current job, yeah, because ah. uh, Galilee is the fund manager of Compounded Fund,
2: I see. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I remember now. Yep. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you so need that. Attractive. You need that to write on that entity. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Serjing was explaining this to me. Okay. Yeah. So if you want to be found, uh, where where can people found you? Find you actually.
0: Um. So you can find us on the good uh, good the good mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a blog that I share. Me and Serjing share our thoughts on. Uh, and we also, if you subscribe to our newsletter, we'll we'll give you an email on every week on some of the searching will write up on uh, some of the. Uh, articles that he, he, he read that week so it's quite interesting he reads a lot and it's yeah. a good summary of some stuff uh, and also you can find us on compounderfund.com. yeah okay. that's where we write our thesis on the, on the companies that we invested in
2: and and you also have your owner's manual there my, my guess uh,
0: yes we have our owner's manual
2: great thank,
0: thank uh, you but so. Yeah. Yeah. so our fund is actually only for accredited investors only so, uh, so just uh, as a disclaimer
2: yeah, I understood. So I think uh, there is, I don't know about in in Singapore, but you must have like a certain amount of income or a certain amount of net worth before you are considered an accredited investor before you can invest, right? Yeah. So, uh,
0: yeah, yeah, you must
2: okay. have a, a certain criteria for that. Great, great, great. Uh, uh, Jeremy, it has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. You know, uh, do you know two hours has passed already? <laughs> Coming to close wow, to two. That, that <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. Time flies, I hope it was fun flies. for you.
0: And I that hope was, it was fun.
2: Fun. Yeah. yeah. Great to chat with you guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Jerry still owes us chili crap. <laughs> yeah, we are planning to but Actually, I'm
0: not familiar. I'm not familiar with all the Cairo guys, by the way. Uh, ah. Oh. Uh, I went for Cairo's one, I think, one or twice. But uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah. I, uh, so it's a
2: good excuse for you to meet, meet up with them as, uh, yeah. as, uh, as well. When, when we we'll let you know
1: out. when yeah. we're down as well, you know. Yeah, soon, exactly. Soon soon. Yeah. Yeah. It'll
0: be nice, yeah. To, yeah, nice to catch up in person.
2: Huh? get yeah, to for see sure, you guys sure. in person. Yeah, for sure. You know, 1st uh, April.
0: The, yeah, now that the Singapore, Malaysia is open
2: already. Yeah, I just resa- realized my passport uh, expired February 2021. So, I have to get that sorted out first. <laughs> 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 all right.
1: Uh, Jeremy, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. MJ,
2: any last words from you? No, man.
1: I just can't wait to see all of you including yourself in, in person. Finally, go to Singapore. You know? It's been a yeah, while. Yeah, it's been a
2: while. Jeremy, yeah. uh thank you so much. All the best. Take care, and you know, stay safe.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. Hey guys.
2: See, ya. See you. See you.